Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. I think 2008 with the crash, that was pretty bad. This is getting up there. Owning a home, Halifax estimates, is around £1,400 a year now, cheaper than renting. What you see in most first-time buyers are a joint mortgage, so it's fine to partner to buy a house with. Um, Not sure if that's available as a request on dating apps, but you know, that might be a gap in the market. When lockdowns began in spring 2020, it's safe to say things were looking uncertain for the future of the property market. Initially, the whole thing ground to a halt, but the market was propelled back to life when restrictions eased, along with a little extra help from the stamp duty holiday. Now, the tax cut came and went, and when it ended, many experts expected the market to slow down. But the latest data from the Office for National Statistics show UK average house prices increased by 9.6% over the year to January 2020, with similar figures expected when new data is available in a couple of weeks. So today, joined by which property expert Stephen Maunder, we're diving into the latest on the property market, covering mortgages versus renting, mortgage rates and house prices. So Steve, can we start here then with what's going on with house prices at the moment? Well, by all accounts, they are soaring at the moment. Uh, as you say, we've seen the ONS and land registry figures saying they're up by around 10% year on year. And those kind of figures are echoed elsewhere. Um, so we have we also have indices from Halifax and Nationwide, which are both based on mortgage lending, and one from Rightmove, which is based on listing prices for properties currently on the market. Mm-hmm. So they all use different methods to calculate their figures. But in every instance, they're saying that prices are rising by double digit amounts at the moment. Wow. Um, there is kind of a word of caution to that which is that when we compare year on year at the moment, we are comparing to the middle of a pandemic and specifically a lockdown. So that means that prices just by their nature will be very volatile at the moment. But I think it -hmm. it is quite notable that indices that use very different methods are all kind of in agreement over what's happening right now. And, And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about price rises coming at us from every angle and seemingly house prices seem to be no different and this really has the biggest effect on people who aren't homeowners who are looking to buy. Now last week Steve you wrote an article asking is buying a house cheaper than renting which we'll put a link to in the description of the episode and it's in terms of the monthly cost of being a homeowner versus renting. So how do these compare? So every year, Halifax uh, does a big comparison of the overall costs of owning a home. 
So that's uh, your mortgage payments and the annual cost of maintenance, etc., compared with kind of the headline monthly cost of renting. And for 2021, it's quite staggeringly different. The, the gap has really risen. So owning a home, Halifax estimates, is around £1,400 a year now, cheaper than renting. And that's mm. primarily because uh, although we've seen huge house price increases, we have seen mortgage rates drop at the same time. So your outgoings have been a bit cheaper if you do own a home than they were before. Whereas for renting, we're now seeing prices rise again and great demand. So the gap is now the biggest it's been in four years, which is really bad news for people who are renting at the moment mm. and trying to save a deposit to get onto the property ladder. It is a substantial gap, isn't it? And as you'd expect, it varies across the country. But are there any standout areas where there isn't much difference between mortgage costs and rent? So London is always a standout area in in any kind of property data, just because the prices are so much higher than elsewhere in the country. But the biggest gaps we've seen in terms of uh, percentage differences are in Scotland and the northwest of England where renting a home is around about 20% more expensive on an annual basis than buying one. Uh, Mm. At the other end of the scale, Northern Ireland has the smallest gap between the cost of owning a home and renting, which is only around about 3%. Wow, that's such a difference, isn't it? So what's been driving the gap then? What's pushed rents to increase at a greater rate than mortgages over the last year? It's a bit of a perfect storm, really, which is that um, during the pandemic, with lots of people uh, kind of moving out of particularly London and other big cities, uh, it kind of meant that rents dropped a little bit, or at least the speed of rental price growth dropped. And as we're kind of coming out of lockdowns now, and hopefully in the coming months, out of the worst of the pandemic, we're seeing people return to cities because they're starting hybrid working or they're needed back in the office. And this has placed really big pressure on rents, which means there's so much more competition now than there was, say, a year ago. Now, that's combined with the fact that in the period Halifax is looking at, kind of headline mortgage rates dropped to the lowest on record. I think last October, there were more than 100 deals priced mm. below 1%. And that really has skewed the figures quite significantly. What we have seen since, and kind of a more positive word for perhaps future first-time buyers, is that that gap should be closing a little bit now because people with big deposits could get incredibly cheap mortgages, whereas now with several raises to the Bank of England base rate, mortgages are getting quite a lot more expensive for those people. Now, for a little more detail on the Halifax research, we've also been speaking to the Mortgages Director at Lloyds Banking Group, which includes Halifax, Esther Dixtra. Here's her response to the findings and the challenge it poses for first-time buyers. The gap in 2019, so fairly recently, was actually the smallest we recorded, and the gap then was only £116 on an annual basis, so that's about a tenner a month. So I think what's important to focus on is not necessarily the gap, but most people have the aspiration to own their own home, which is something that's really positive and something that's really encouraged. So the challenge is more of how can get people onto the housing ladder if they have to pay, uh, you know, a monthly rent that is quite uh, steep. And how can they save up for a deposit and make sure they can afford a mortgage to buy their own 
home. Rents are definitely on the rise, and that is partly driven coming out of uh, COVID, out of lockdown. You see that people have started uh, to move. You've seen that, you know, in terms of home ownership, but also, of course, in terms of renting. So people have started to go back to work and rent in uh, towns and city centres where they work, students have gone back, etc. So you therefore see more pressure on the rental market and hence an increase in rents. Um, and like I said, there is also more competition for those houses because there are also more people buying coming out of uh, lockdown. We had the stamp duty holiday, which has generated a lot of um, demand in, in buying of houses. So there is a big issue here around affordability for renters and renters trying to save to buy their first home. Now, a few weeks ago on the podcast, as part of our Ease the Squeeze series, we looked at the rising cost of renting. There, along with our consumer rights expert, Adam French, I was joined by Dan Wilson-Craw from the campaign group for private renters Generation Rent. And I just want to listen back to a point we discussed on the proportion of your income that's spent on housing, because recent figures from the government's English housing survey really puts this in perspective. It reports that many renters are paying more than what's considered an affordable chunk. One of the biggest uh, problems that we hear from renters is just that rents are so high that they can't afford to put any money aside to to actually put down as a deposit on a, on a home and become a homeowner themselves. themselves. Um mm. And obviously, um, it, it, it varies quite a lot around the country. So in uh, in London, um, the the amount of your income you're spending on rent is much higher than that, 31%. Generally, 31% is considered to be sort of what's affordable, um, or 30% is, is, is considered affordable for, for housing costs. But yeah, for, for, for many renters, uh, particularly people on low incomes and, and middle incomes, indeed, they're paying much more than that, that 30%. That's terrible. So the the average amount is already basically at that threshold of what's affordable. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, um, and and then and and then if you're if you're on a low income and in, in, and a lot of people are you know since the pandemic have have uh, lost income, um, the numbers claiming universal credit are about a third higher than they were before the pandemic. So that that means that their yeah a lot more of their of their income is going on rent. Do go back and have a listen to that episode if you haven't already. It covers loads of amazing advice that every renter really, really does need to know. Now, Steve, so if you're a renter paying more on rent than you can afford, which seems to be too often the case, hearing from Dan and the government's survey, getting on the property ladder, is it getting harder? I, th- I think when you look at house prices and the way they're going, it's difficult to argue otherwise. Now, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of mm. something, kind of a crumb of comfort, if you like. and. <laughs> That, that probably is still in mortgage rates, ultimately, for people with small deposits, because uh, 90% and 95% mortgage rates haven't been that badly affected by the base rate increases, unlike other parts of the market. So if you do have a small deposit and you can save enough deposits, then you can still get a good deal on a mortgage. We've also seen banks loosen their criteria a little, so... Generally speaking, when you take out a mortgage, you can borrow around four and a half times your income. But we've seen Nationwide mm-hmm. take the lead in offering up to five and a half times income, even for people with a small wow. deposit. So that that will provide a boost to some buyers. The, the difficulty is, again, saving that, that deposit of whatever mm-hmm. size, especially at a time when the cost of living is rising quite significantly. 
Well, we might get to another possible crumb of comfort, as you nicely put it, in a moment. But first, we've also been speaking to the editor of First Time Buyer magazine, Linda Clark, on this. And she certainly seems to think it's never been harder for first time buyers. I think it's the worst time, I think, that during my my sort of period of being editor, which is a very long time, I think 2008 with the crash, that was pretty bad. This is getting up there. Um, it's not so much buying a home, it's actually the cost of living has gone sky high, which we know. So those things all put together make the actual deposit situation even harder. So is there a lifeline then for first-time buyers? Well, Linda goes on to tell us shared ownership could be the answer. There's so many myths around shared ownership that are so untrue. I mean, the, 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 the name shared ownership alludes to the fact that you share with whoever that is absolutely not what you're doing is you're sharing the home with the housing association it's it's slightly complicated because up until very recently you could buy a minimum of 25 percent share of the home and the 75 percent left you paid rent on The more shares you buy, the less rent you pay. If you could afford to buy more than 25%, obviously do that because that that makes the rent less. You get a mortgage on the bit you're buying. And what you can do is you can what we call staircase, which means as and when you can afford it, you buy more shares. And that means that your mortgage goes up, you own more of the property and you pay less rent until hopefully you can staircase to 100% and then the home's yours. Not that long ago, uh, the government decided to change it. So it's probably made it more attainable for more people. But now the minimum you can buy is 10%. It is your home. You You can make it your own. You can paint the walls. You can put pictures on the walls. You can change the flooring if you want. You can do whatever you like. It's not like you're with a landlord that's coming in and laying down strict rules and regulations. It is your home and very much your home, just that you have to pay that rent, obviously, to the housing association until such time as you've staircased. I I really think it's a fantastic way to get onto the ladder, frankly. Steve, it's clear Linda is a big fan here. Um, Where do you sit on shared ownership? I think shared ownership is kind of an interesting concept. Uh, Obviously, the idea of buying part of a home rather than the whole home. And that's that's obviously a symptom of a housing market that's got out of control in the last decade, really, for us even to be in that situation. I think if we're looking at the good things about Mm. shared ownership, it, it can be an option if you're buying in a city such as London, where house prices are so ridiculously high that you might have no chance of buying in the city as a first-time buyer with a small deposit. Uh, There are some downsides, though, Mm. and it really depends on your own situation. So when we've researched shared ownership in the past, we found that it can be a good way of getting on the ladder. It can be a good way of getting kind of a new build flat. But the combined cost of the mortgage the rent you pay to the housing association and the service charge you'll also pay can really add up. It's important to look beyond those headline figures and really do your research into Mm. what it will cost you in total. I think we should probably also mention that a lot of shared ownership properties are leasehold flats. 
And there are kind of big concerns at the moment with leasehold flats, with the ongoing building safety crisis. So I certainly wouldn't say to a first-time buyer that you shouldn't consider an option such as shared ownership, but really don't rush into it and take your time to work out whether it's the right choice for you. Absolutely. It's definitely one of those where you really do need to weigh up the pros and cons. Now, before we get into some more advice for first-time buyers, let's first hear from Esther once again, as she gives a very interesting insight into who is the ninth biggest lender to first-time buyers in the UK. It's a big challenge for people. Um, Like I said before, if you pay that rent and you want to save uh, for a deposit, because that's often the first hurdle, how do you get the deposit? Um, and what we see is, you know, most people use the bank of mum and dad, now the ninth largest lender in the UK, about 49% of first time buyers uh, do need help from friends, family, etc. So it's definitely worthwhile having that conversation. Um, another one is that what you see in most first time buyers are a joint mortgage. So it's fine to partner to buy a house with. Um, not sure if that's available as a request on dating apps, but you know, that might be a gap in the market. Uh, I'm not sure I can see dating apps rolling with that, but Esther's definitely got a point at the end there. It's a kind of interesting hack, isn't it, Steve? So what do you think about that one? And are there any other schemes for first time buyers that, that listeners should know about? Well, I, th- I think if the answer was just just marry someone rich, then I'd certainly be out of the job. So um, I, sh- I shouldn't comment too much on that. I'm, I'm actually a bit surprised that the Bank of Mum and Dad doesn't feature higher on that list. Really? Um, yeah, it seems to be every year we hear that uh, the Bank of Mum and Dad, the Bank of Grandpa and Grandma or whatever are mm. increasingly vital to people getting onto the ladder. Um, if, if we look aside from that... Um, Help to Buy is obviously the one that everyone knows about. It's been going a long time and it is still going. You've got another year to use that scheme if you would like to. That allows you to uh, get an equity loan from the government, which uh, reduces the size of the mortgage you have to take out. But th- there are some restrictions and price caps around with Help to Buy, around Help to Buy. So it does feel like that scheme is winding down a little bit now. Mm-hmm. Um, the government is really looking at its first home scheme is very significant at the moment. It's the one that it really wants to talk about whenever you get in touch with them. Um, (laughs) So First Homes uh, basically is just recently launched and it will offer buyers a discount of up to 30% on new build properties. Uh, It's only open for first-time buyers and we don't yet know how significant it's going to be. There's some pilot schemes going on at the moment and councils are going to be allowed to choose who they prioritise in their area. So if you're a key worker or you work for the NHS, for example, you might find that you get priority for these homes when they're built. I think the government's really relying on that becoming more of a mainstream option for first-time buyers. So it'll be interesting to kind of monitor over the next 12 months or so whether that kind of takes the place of help to buy in in terms of schemes for first-time buyers. So aside from schemes, and to return briefly to the bank of mum and dad, um, there is another option that doesn't involve parents basically handing over money for a deposit. And that may be a good option for some people who either can't do that or aren't willing to do that. Um, And that's guarantor mortgages. Now, guarantor mortgages involve essentially a parent or relative using either their savings or their, uh, their property that they live in themselves 
as security against their child's mortgage. So essentially what happens is a lender will offer a specific guarantor mortgage, you will link up with your parent, and ultimately if you default on your mortgage, your parent will then be the person who's on the hook. Now obviously that doesn't come without risks either, so I'm not saying everyone should do that, but that could be a bit more of a left field option for people who aren't in a position where they can hand over thousands and thousands of pounds for a deposit. Mm. What do guarantor mortgage rates look like? Would you be paying a lot more going for that option? I think generally speaking, you will pay a bit more, but it really varies depending mm. on the um, the type you take out. So if you take out a guarantor mortgage where the parent locks up a certain amount of their savings in a bank account that is with the same lender as the mortgage, then you may get a better deal, for example, than if you take out one where the parent just uses their own property to underwrite it. So this is really where speaking to a mortgage broker can come in really handy for you because they can can really speak to you about your specific circumstances and find out which lender might offer you that kind of deal. And in a lot of cases, it won't necessarily be the lenders you think. Mm. It could well be a smaller building society that you would never consider if you were just looking for a standard mortgage. So what I would say is if, if you are a first-time buyer, like it is difficult at the moment, but it's worth looking into all of these options, looking into the pros and cons of them, because you might just find one that suits you. And looking forward then, what are experts predicting for the property market? As we've already heard, the base rate is rising, which means higher mortgage rates and the gap between monthly renting and mortgage costs lessening. But to what extent will this change in the future? Has the Bank of England given any, given any indication there? Well, the Bank of England is, um, is really bracing itself for inflation to continue to rise over the next uh, three, four, five months. It's predicted it could get as high as 7 or 8% um, by the middle of the year. And what that means to guard against that is it's increased the base rate three times since December. It was at a historic mm-hmm. low of 0.1%, and now it's at 0.75%, which is still lower than it has been in the past, but it kind of has seen seen off the mortgage price war and the end of historic historically low mortgage rates. Um, I think for people in the owner-occupier market, people who already own properties, you will see the cost of your mortgage rise possibly when you come to renew it at the end of your fix, particularly if you've locked in a really cheap deal. But for first-time buyers, the base rate isn't the biggest thing to worry about would be what I'd say because uh, 90 and 95% mortgages are already priced much higher than those very, very cheap mortgages. And last year, the government's moved to uh, bring in the 95% mortgage guarantee scheme where it takes on some of the risks for those low deposit mortgages it means there's so much competition in that market. So I would say first time buyers don't worry so much about the base rate rises. I, th- I think there is still a concern about the cost of renting though. We have seen it rising particularly in city markets and our research shows that there are a few things you can do to combat against that. You can haggle on rent you can get a better deal if you feel empowered to do so so what i would suggest is listening to our previous podcast on the cost of living and the cost of renting to get those tips absolutely and lastly then what about house prices it is something that never ceases to make the headlines so do house prices show any signs of slowing down 
Well, at, at some point they have to stop going up at the rate they have been. And I think that I think maybe uh, some experts have actually been a little bit surprised at the speed they have continued to rise. At the start of the year, we were seeing uh, major, major kind of companies in this area, like some Zupla, Savills, et cetera, saying over the course of the year, we might just see prices rise two, three, four percent. And what we've seen at the start of the year has been hugely in excess of that. Now, we, I think we will start to see price growth slow down, but the issue is it probably won't stop entirely. So as the year progresses, we won't be at double-digit growth anymore, the, the chances are. But we're unlikely to see prices completely stagnate or fall. And that, that's bad news for first-time buyers, ultimately. I would point out that it is dangerous to compare year-on-year year when you're comparing to the pandemic, particularly with the stamp duty holiday last year. So mm-hmm. if you see a headline that says prices in your area have gone up 7 8 9% in the last 12 months, and maybe just take that as a bit of context. Don't, don't be disheartened by that and take that as, oh, I'll never be able to afford a property then. The, these figures are there to give us an idea of trends as opposed to be kind of verbatim about what's happening because house price changes can mm. really go down to street by street, let alone town by town or region by region. So I do think that price growth will slow down, but I also think that some of those experts who made their predictions at the start of the year of very small price growth may be back at their calculators Mm -hmm. now, maybe edging those figures up a little bit. Thank you so much to Steve for coming on the show today and thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money Podcast. Before you head off, please do hit follow and subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening. And for more money news and advice, find us on social media at Witch Money and online at witch.co.uk forward slash money. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Charlotte Gifford. Mm-hmm.